0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're Uh, In fellowship, ready to focus, concentrate, study the Word, let God the Holy Spirit take these things and challenge us. So uh, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come before you, before the throne of grace, because we know that we have access through a high priest who has been qualified through his impeccable life to not only save us, but also to be uh, our mediator, our intercessor, and that it is on the basis of his completed work on the cross that we have instant and direct access to your throne of grace. Now, Father, as we study these things this evening, we pray that you might challenge us with the importance of these things as we reflect upon your character, your faithfulness, your veracity, that we might be reminded that everything that is said in your word is absolute truth and that, therefore, we can rely upon it more than we can rely upon anything else in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews Chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and we're nearing the end of this particular section in Hebrews, which is started off leading to a discussion on on the Melchizedekian priesthood, the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, which is distinct from the Jewish Levitical priesthood. And as the writer is about to embark on an in-depth discussion of Christ's priesthood, he stops. He abruptly changes subject, shifts to a challenge, a spiritual challenge, almost a rebuke. The tone gets pretty sharp in a few places at the end of chapter 5, leading to one of the most uh, debated warning passages in the Uh, in the New Testament, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, where some people say that it indicates that if you commit certain sins or if you're not faithful, then you'll lose your salvation. We went through that in detail and showed that that is not true. The tone of the writer as he challenges them because they've become dull of hearing, according to verse 11, because they've come to need milk and not solid food, in verse 12, and because they've, they're unskilled in the word of righteousness, he, uh, he rebukes them, it seems, rather harshly. And then he changes his tone in verse 9 and comes back and says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you that accompany your salvation. That is a word that's loaded with phase three sense rather than phase one. For God, it's not unjust to forget the work that you've already accomplished, that spiritual advance you already have, the divine good you already have, and your labor of love, your work, the way you've ministered to others in the body of Christ. But we desire you to show the same diligence as Old Testament saints that have pushed through to spiritual maturity. So he's thinking in terms of Old Testament examples. And this leads him to verse 12 where he says that they are to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise, then he's going to give an illustration, and there's one illustration that he uses beginning in verse thirteen, where he talks about God making a promise to Abraham, and throughout this section we have this emphasis on promise, promise in verse twelve, promise in verse thirteen, promise in verse fifteen, promise in verse seventeen. but what undergirds what 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 gives is the hidden girders, as it were. The strength of this whole argument is that it's based on the character of God. That is, his, his overt purpose is to challenge them to press forward because of what's in front of them, but it's based upon uh, God's immutability and his veracity. So we'll just, uh, we start off, well, I didn't get it up there, being reminded of the of the character of God. God There are two aspects of the character of God that are brought out in this passage. The first is God's immutability, which means his unchangeableness. And it's related to the doctrine of God's faithfulness. And when we look at the Old Testament Hebrew words for faithfulness, one of the word groups that is used, it's translated faithfulness, is the word group based on the Hebrew... Uh, three letter root, ayan, maim, noon, which is, comes across in some forms as amen or amen. And in some forms it's amuna, which indicates faithfulness. And in other passages it indicates truth. And one of the passages where this word is used in a different context gives us a, a, a different sense of its meaning. It refers in a passage in Chronicles, to the foundation stones under the doorposts of the temple. These would be those bedrock uh, stones that were used to support the foundation of the entryway to the temple. Now, when we were over in Israel last summer, we saw some of these foundation stones from the second temple period, and some of those may have been from the first temple period, which would have been this this period, and they were estimated to. Some of these were estimated to weigh as much as 530 tons. Now, if you're familiar with the Great Pyramid of Giza, now people tend to tout that as as being a great architectural wonder, and the largest stone in the in the in the Great Pyramid of Giza is 30 tons. Let me see, 30 tons, 530 tons, 30 tons, 500. I mean, these are impresses. You just don't move them very easily. They are, we can say, immovable. That's the idea of God's faithfulness is it's unmovable, unshakable. It's unchangeable. We can always count on and depend upon God's faithfulness. Well, because God is faithful, he is also true. His word is dependable. And this leads to the other direction that the word group takes, and that is truthfulness or veracity. So both ideas, faithfulness on the one hand and veracity on the other hand, or truthfulness, come out of this same uh, basic word group. So when we talk about these two aspects of God's character, two attributes, his immutability and his veracity, they are interdependent upon one another. They Uh, They connect to one another. They're not uh, independent, autonomous concepts. And we have an emphasis on those two attributes in this passage. Now, the other thing that lies in the background here is the creator-creature distinction, that God is completely different from us. He is distinct as the creator and we are the creature. Nothing within creaturely frame of reference is Dependable as God is dependable. Nothing in human experience is truth in the sense that God is truth. We can talk about things that are true with a small t, but God is truth all uppercase. He is the source of truth. God isn't true because God in his character somehow fits an abstract external standard of what truth is. See that would be a Greek concept that somehow truth are are these abstract principles that the that the material universe uh, is based on and exemplifies. In Greek thought, there's no person behind the impersonal physical universe. So you just have you just have matter out there, an eternal matter, but what. We have in Scripture is that God is a person and He is completely distinct from anything within the creation. Therefore, you can't have God, truth in God, or righteousness in God, or any moral judgment in God being moral or right or true because it fits a standard that is external to God. God is His own standard, He is the ultimate reference point for everything in creation. That's part of the importance of the creator-creature distinction and therefore you have passages that talk about God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts, God's ways different from our ways because He is totally different. And so our understanding of God is something that theologians will will say to be analogical. Analogical which simply means we understand God by way of analogy. We don't understand him or know him exhaustively or completely or even directly. We understand him indirectly. The Bible uses numerous uh, comparisons and metaphors, figures of speech like anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms to communicate to us within our limited finite uh, frame of reference. But we can know God truly, but we can't know God exhaustively but it's on the basis of his character that we can learn to relax no matter what the problems are. So a place where one doctrine that the writer of Hebrews is headed toward here is that it is the truth of God and it is Jesus Christ who provides this anchor for our soul. This is verse 19, and that is something that, that holds us stable. So obviously he's dealing with a group of believers who, through because of persecution, because they have left the priesthood, they're Jewish Christians, they've left the priesthood, they've left their families, they're going through rejection, they're going through persecution, they're going through a number of different things of that nature, and they're unstable at this point because of their uncertainty with doctrine. This is goes back to phrases he used earlier that they come to need milk and not solid food. They become dull of hearing. And as a result of that, he is challenging them to return to the only point of stability that exists in the universe. And so what undergirds this section that we're studying this evening from about verse 13, actually from verse 16 down to 20 is the immutability and veracity of God. This is what gives us stability in life. It's not from anything in creation, any of your circumstances, emotions, feelings, how people respond to you, how people treat you, your job. Nothing gives us certainty or stability other than God. So let's just review where this passage is going. Verse 13, the writer is reviewing or giving a reason why they should... uh, Imitate Old Testament saints through faith and patience. And the example comes from Abraham. So he explains it as for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So verse 13 brings in this idea of swearing uh, an oath. Verse 16 will come back and uh, develop this idea as will verse 17, ending up with the phrase being confirmed by an oath. And that comes directly out of Genesis chapter 22, as we studied it last time when God tested Abraham by telling him to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This is the quote from Hebrews chapter 6 verse 14 that is lifted directly out of Genesis twenty-two seventeen. at the end of the test, after Abraham has passed the whole test from the time God first ordered him to take uh, Isaac to Mount Moriah to the time that he completes the test and God stays his hand and, uh, and provides the substitute ram. When this is all over with, God gives his last confirmation, reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. He says... I will certainly bless you, that's a better translation, I will certainly bless you and I will certainly multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and sand of the seashore and your descendants will possess the gate of their enemies. The focal point here is on the seed, which was the issue of the test, whether or not Abraham was willing to trust God with the life of Isaac. Uh, Hebrews 6.14 translates it simply as, or just lifts out that first part, Surely blessing I will bless you, And multiplying, I will multiply you. Now, when we look at verse 15, we read, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And I pointed out last time that the concept of patience here isn't talking about his patience from the first time God gave him the promise of the seed when he was 75 years old until the seed was finally realized when he was 100, because he didn't. He had to learn to trust God. But when that final test came, he was patient and had a relaxed mental attitude about it because he knew God could resurrect Isaac even if he had to sacrifice him. God would bring him back from the dead. So he had a relaxed mental attitude. He trusted God and had patience, faith and patience, uh, throughout that test, and he obtained the promise, that is, the security of that particular quote. Now, what's interesting is Hebrews tends to reverse the emphasis of these verses a little bit from Genesis 22. Genesis 22.16 talks about God's swearing, an oath to Abraham. Genesis 22.17 gives us the content of the oath. Whereas in Hebrews, although it mentions the swearing in verse 13... Verse 14 quotes from Genesis twenty two seventeen, and then verse 16 and 17 comes back to further explain the significance of God swearing an oath. Why is that important that God swore an oath? So we come to verse 16 now. <clears throat> verse 16 reads... For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So the explanation that the writer gives here is based first on human experience. Rather than starting with God, which is what we would expect, he is he's explaining why God used an oath. God doesn't need to give an oath because God is truth. He is truth, his word is truth, and he doesn't need to swear an oath. He just needs to say it and it's just as uh, true and sure as if he <coughs> had sworn sworn an oath. But God swears the oath in order to reinforce the certainty of the promise for the sake of the frailty of for the sake of the frailty of human beings. And so verse 16 is simply a statement that confirms normal human practice. He says, "...for men indeed swear by the greater." And the word translated men there is the word anthropos, which can mean human beings as a whole. But in this passage, even though it can mean human beings as a whole... And it doesn't necessarily mean just males as opposed to males and females. Here it's probably talking about men because the context of oath swearing is based on the Mosaic law. And in the Jewish Old, in the Hebrew Old Testament, you don't have any examples of women swearing oaths. The Swearing of an oath was a, uh, a legal and a covenant issue. And so the restrictions are such that it applied to men as opposed to women so it's talking about the jewish practice men indeed swear by the greater it is typical of men to come along and swear an oath in the name of a of a deity the word there in the greek for an oath is the word omnuo which means to affirm the veracity or the truthfulness of a statement by invoking a transcendent entity. Uh, Frequently, it's associated with an implied invitation of punishment if one is untruthful. In other words, if my words don't come true, then cut off my arm or take my life or something of that nature. So that's the idea (coughs) of an oath. So they make an oath... uh, of confirmation, and Exodus 22.11 gives us one example of that in the Old Testament. Then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. The, the issue here is, has to do with a case law in the Mosaic law where there is concern that one person is stolen for another. And so the one who has been accused... Of thievery is supposed to take an oath of the Lord. So this is a very serious matter. It would take place at the uh, tabernacle or temple and involve the sacrifice of an animal and swearing before God that this act had not taken place. Verse 16 goes on to say that this oath is for confirmation that brings uh, that for confirmation that word for confirmation is a word uh, bebiosis which means to establish or to ratify a treaty or to confirm a covenant now we're going to go to galatians 3:15 and following in a few minutes and you have a different word for ratify there but these are synonyms here you have bebiosis to establish ratify or con- confirm a treaty. Now if you look down just at, just a little bit ahead in Hebrews 6 to verse 19, you'll see the word steadfast. That's translated steadfast in your English. And this is a cognate of this same word. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews uses this is because establishing or confirming a covenant is related to something that has certainty. That is steadfast. So he's he's using this similar vocabulary because it reinforces the what undergirds this whole passage, which is the absolute certainty of God's word and that it can be depended upon despite what our feelings might be or what the circumstances may indicate. And so in the human realm, men who are involved in a disagreement or a dispute would swear an oath, and this would bring an end to the dispute, which is the Greek word antilogia, meaning a controversy, some sort of question of law or dispute, and uh, where there's an antagonism. So you have this idea of antilogia, or substitute word, which comes to mean uh, dispute. So we just have a simple illustration in verse 16 to explain the significance of an oath. And it is that men come and they swear by a deity. They invoke the name of a god or goddess, whatever, but it's something greater than them. Okay, now, to whom is God going to appeal as greater than he? There's no one. That's the point. See, this has lots of applications, one of which is one you get into in apologetics. How are you going to prove the Bible? What standard are you going to... If the Bible is what it claims to be, which is the very Word of God, how are you going to prove it by appealing to a greater standard? There's not a greater standard. Now, this leads to what a lot of non-Christians will say is just a circular argument. Why do you believe the Bible? Because it's the Word of God. How do you know it's the Word of God? Because it says so. Well, how do you know it's true? Because it's the Word of God. See, that sounds like a circular argument, but in fact... It can be presented that way, and a lot of people do. It's not circular. It is an, What we're arguing, what we'll say is that you know it's the Word of God because there are confirming evidences that it is true. In other words, if there are claims that the Bible is true, then you look at various things that document or support that. For example... You can look at archaeology today and how archaeology has confirmed things historically that the Bible said happened. You can look at prophecies that were made in the Old Testament. You can go to prophecies about the destruction of Tyre. You can go to prophecies like Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. You can go to other prophecies that were made from Isaiah's time, uh, some two or three hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. Where Isaiah makes it clear that they're going to be taken out and destroyed by the Babylonians. And not only that, but somebody named Cyrus is going to be responsible for bringing everybody back. And so you have the specificity of numerous Old Testament prop, uh, prophecies that reinforce the veracity of God's Word. And so you look at these things as confirmations and evidences. You do the same thing with claims on the deity of Christ. How do you know that Jesus is God? The Bible says so. Well, how do you know the Bible is true? Because Jesus said it was true. Well, how do you know Jesus is telling the truth? So you get into what appears to be a circular argument. But the problem that you have in some kinds of apologetics is that they treat truth and history as if they're autonomously absolute. And you can't do that. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of that. You can prove Jesus is God because of the resurrection. And there are unbelievers, skeptics, non Christian skeptics who say, okay, great, Jesus rose from the dead. There's all kinds of things that happen in history I can't explain. That doesn't prove he's God. See, the, what's happened in that apologetic approach is that there's an assumption that we can all agree that if something happened in history, it means something. And so history is treated as if it proves, as opposed to confirming the Bible. So these may seem like some nice little fine-tuned things that, that you shouldn't be concerned with, but if you talk to somebody who has any snap between their ears, they come back with these kinds of things, and so it's important to recognize that if, if you're uh, explaining, giving an answer for the hope that is in you, you don't make the mistake of, of, of setting up either abstract concepts of truth, right and wrong, history, or any of these other things as autonomous absolutes that God is then a- answerable to, as if it's a, a, a truth. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God wouldn't do that because God is fair. Well, you know, I just heard something I didn't like. And that is that a lot of people have this their own idea of what fair is, and then God conforms to it. See, God, by definition, determines from his character what fair and fairness is, what righteousness is, what justice is. There's not this abstract, autonomous concept. He defines what everything is. And so you you can't sl, uh, slip around this. And that's what the writer here is pointing out, that when men swear by something, it's, it's greater than them, but God is going to swear by something, but what's greater than God? And we come to our next verse, verse 17. In the New King James, it begins, thus God, which is a way to try to smooth out the Greek, but it literally says in which, that is, in which, in this act of swearing an oath, okay, in which God is the subject, then you have a a participle, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel Confirmed it by an oath. That's the point. God, in which, that is in this practice of swearing an oath, God confirmed what he was going to do with Abraham. So why did he do it this way? He did it in order to give us a greater sense. He is, he is condescending to, to us. He is lowering himself to our level of frame of reference so that we can understand what he is doing. So he gives this confirmation through this oath ceremony. So he's going to show us something. And the word epideknumi means to show, to exhibit, to show something off before something or to demonstrate something before an audience. That's what the writer is saying here. This is an this is Exhibit A for God's faithfulness. And God swore an oath by himself. So he does this as a testimony, as a witness for all generations. They can come back and see this thing that God did in space-time history with Abraham. He does it to demonstrate something before an audience. The audience is defined here as the heirs of promise. And that would apply to believers. And he does so uh, more abundantly. I don't have a slide on that word. The word translated more abundantly brings up the concept of going beyond what is expected. It is the from the uh, Greek word perisoteros, uh, which is a comparative word indicating that it goes far beyond uh, any other. Expectation. It is in an exceeding manner. It is more than abundant. It is super abundant. God wants to do more than anyone could ever ask or hope for or think. So He is going to give, to go far beyond uh, what might be uh, simply acceptable in order to make this demonstration to the heirs of promise that His word is immutable. The word for immutability is the word metathetas, which means it's unalterable, it's uh, unchangeable or impossible. We get this word a couple of times. We get it in verse, uh, verse 17, and we're going to get it again in verse 18. The New King James translates it immutable in both places. It can be uh, immutable, unchangeable. Uh, metatithemi refers to something that is changeable, but the alpha that a at the beginning is like our uh, prefix un, and it me, and it negates the word, so it literally means unchangeable or immutable. And the word what's immutable is his counsel. This is the Greek word boulamai Now this is not referring to you. Often hear people as soon as they see the word God's counsel, they immediately jump. To the doctrine of divine decrees. This passage doesn't have anything to do with the doctrine of divine decrees. You don't see anything like that. The word bulamai simply expresses his wish, his desire, or his plan for something. Now, if we're in the middle of an illustration, a biblical illustration, of God's promise to Abraham, what's the plan that we're talking about? God's plan for Israel. God's plan to bring in a savior through the descendants of Abraham in relationship to to his promise in the covenant that God's going to give Abraham's descendants a piece of real estate, the land. He's going to uh, give him specific descendants under the category of seed and that through them all nations are going to be blessed. See, if you go back to verse 13, 14. We have the quote from Genesis twenty-two seventeen. The focus of that quote in twenty two seventeen is on the seed, on his blessing for all people. So God determines to show more abundantly, this is his grace that goes beyond anything that we can imagine, to the heirs of promise that is in context to the to the Jews the immutability of his counsel. That is that God's not going to go back on his promise to Abraham. God is not someone who's going to come along and say, okay, Jews, you failed to accept the Messiah, so therefore I'm cutting you out. That's what's called replacement theology. And you have a lot of people today who think replacement theology is great. In fact, there's a, there is a uh, a scholarly paper that was published. I can't remember the name of it right now. It's published on the website for John Knox Seminary. John Knox Seminary is associated with uh, James Kennedy's uh, Presbyterian Church in Coral Gables, California. You see James Kennedy on television all the time. Uh, he's got the. He's probably Lordship. He's very, uh, very Calvinistic, very reformed in his theology, and the faculty there wrote a paper, Why Evangelicals Don't Need to Support Israel. That's the gist of the title. And it's because, as far as they're concerned, Israel forfeited any special place in God's plan in history because they rejected the Messiah. And that is replacement theology. And surprise, surprise, if you are a premillennial dispensationalist, you reject replacement theology, you believe that God still has a future plan for Israel, but we're in the minority And we're in a shrinking minority because as you throw out literal interpretation of Scripture and you throw out a number of these other biblical distinctives with the pressure that's being put on Israel by the world and everybody in America is scared to death to fight a war anymore. We've all turned yellow and chicken. And nobody wants to actually do what needs to be done to destroy radical Islam that what happens is uh, people have compromised for so long with the agenda of the Arabs that nobody has the the framework, the politics, the backbone to stand up anymore. And so let's find some justification in Scripture not to support Israel anymore. And so it's, it's amazing that we have a president who supports Israel for the most part. His policies support Israel as long as we have... Men in the White House who continue to do that, then God is going to, I think, continue to protect America. But once we start letting anybody near the White House who has an agenda to uh, mollify the radical Arab agenda to destroy Israel, then we are probably going to see nine, things like 9-11 happen on a much greater order. So the focus here is the fact that God's counsel, his will, his plan for Israel is immutable. He's not going to go back on the Abrahamic covenant, and this is why he confirmed it by an oath. And the word there translated confirm is the Greek word mesetuo, which doesn't really mean confirm. We have that in some other uh word bebaao has that idea in some passages this is a different word it means to act as a guarantor to to mediate a a struggle to act as a guarantor of something in other words god steps into the middle of this situation and he is going to guarantee the promise himself by means of his own oath so that's how it should be translated uh let's just correct the translation hebrew 6:17 in which, that is, in this practice of oath swearing, God, determining to show through His abundant grace to the heirs of the promise, that is, to Israel, the immutability of His plan, confirmed it or guaranteed it by means of an oath. Now, let's hold our place here and turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 uses the same kind of vocabulary to talk about this same promise. So just hold your place there and turn over to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 2 through 6, the focus is on sanctification, that it's not by means of the law, it's by means of the Holy Spirit. But before he gets to talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16, Paul builds a case showing why the law and what God did through the Jews was not only temporary, but it cannot be the basis for the spiritual life. So chapter 3 fits in the middle of that discussion where he is reinforcing the fact that we have been redeemed by Christ, not by the law that redeemed us verse 13 redeemed us from the curse of the law and then verse 14 gives us the purpose for that redemption that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the gentiles in Christ Jesus that's part of the genesis 2217 promise that God would bless all the nations through Abraham, that blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, see, he's connecting, and that, with that purpose clause, he connects Christ Jesus, the redemption, the justification that was the sub issue in Galatians 1 and 2, with the <coughs> coming of the Holy Spirit is a basis for the uh, blessings for the church-age believer. And now verse 15. It says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Now isn't that what the writer of Hebrews did? He g- starts off in verse 16, For men indeed swear by the greater. He's talking about human practices. Paul does the same thing in Galatians 3.15. They're, 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 I'm not making a case for Pauline authorship of hebrews don't don't worry because they use different vocabulary and different styles but they're saying the same thing so these two passages sort of reinforce each other he says I speak in the matter of, of men though it is only a man's covenant when when you go out and you buy a house and you get a and you sign a real estate contract with the realtor or you get a mortgage and you sign a contract for, for the mortgage or you get a credit card and you sign that contract or any kind of time in life you sign a contract you sign a covenant. And so that's what so it's playing. So it's a human covenant and even though you you have a human covenant it's confirmed once it is confirmed once it is uh, ratified, and this is the Greek word kurao. It's not a form of biblio like we had over in Hebrews. It's kuraao, which refers to authority or confirmation to establish something as valid. Once it is confirmed, once you sign the document and it gets notarized, you don't come back and add to it. You don't change it. You can't wake up the next morning going, "Well, you know, market dropped yesterday. Interest rates are now five percent, not five and a quarter." I'm just going to. Uh, start paying 5% interest on my loan. Now you can't change it. Once it's established, it's set. That's the point. Now we get into verse 16. And I didn't put it up on the screen. Okay, no slide for verse 16. Verse 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now, it's this is a great promise. Ab- uh, I mean, Paul is going to take this one passage... And he is going to digress. He's just going to take a short rabbit trail here in order to make a very important point. He says, To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And he says then, and note, Paul says, he did not say, and to seeds, because Paul's point isn't that this goes to all the Jews, but as of many But as of one and to your seed, who is Christ, because the blessing goes through one person and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul builds his whole point here on the fact that you have a noun in the singular and not in the plural. And this is what lies behind our emphasis on the doctrine of inspiration and word-by-word exegesis. It's the words of Scripture are inspired, not the ideas. It's important to look at the grammar. It's said this way instead of that way in, for a purpose. It's not simply just for uh, literary variation. I know one, one of the things that happens and when you're writing is that a general rule of writing is don't use the same word again and again in a paragraph or over two or three paragraphs. There should be variation of style and variation of vocabulary. But sometimes if you're making a point about something, you'll repeat the same word, just as I pointed out that in Hebrews chapter 6 there, Paul uses the word promise uh, three or four times, four times I think. You have that kind of thing happen in other parts of Scripture where Paul will use the same word five or six times in three verses, and you will have four or five different English words used to translate the same Greek word. See, what happens there is you just changed the emphasis of the scripture. Because God, the Holy Spirit, inspired that writer through inspiration to use that same word five times for emphasis in order to pull attention to that one word and that one concept. God the Holy Spirit didn't think you needed various style in order to keep people from falling asleep or think he was a bad writer. He was making a point that way. That is, uh, that's how it was done in ancient literature. So when a translator comes along and uses three or four different English words to translate one Greek word that is used four or five times in those same verses, it changes the emphasis of the passage ever so subtly. But it changes the thrust of the passage. And the English reader can't catch on to the thread that, is, that the Holy Spirit set up there by repeating the same word uh, five or six times throughout the passage. Now, just to give you a little review on the doctrine of inspiration, our word inspiration is not the best word, but it's our, the word that is the English translation of the Greek word theopneustos, which literally means God breathe, the God the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture in such a way that they're breathing out Scripture. It's not that they somehow have just some sort of uh, uh, lofty idea all of a sudden. Uh, we can talk about Shakespeare being inspired or some artist being inspired or some uh, sudden new ideas being well, that's just such an inspiration or somebody being very motivated or motivating us by their behavior. That's not what we mean. It means to... to uh, It's almost outspire is what it should be that God breathed out through these human writers of scriptures so that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style or personality, their personal feelings or any other human factor... His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of the divine authorship. That's what we refer to as verbal inspiration, that the words are inspired, and that's very important. Plenary is another word that's been introduced, and that means that the totality of Scripture is equally inspired, so that the... Uh, genealogies of uh, 1 Chronicles 1 through 9 are just as inspired as the Sermon on the Mount. And they're just as much the words of Christ, because the whole Bible is the mind of Christ, they're just as much the words of Christ as those red-letter sections in your red-letter Bible. I always get a kick out of this. Dr. Ryrie just would drill that into us when I had him for bibliology in my first year of seminary, that the whole Bible is the Word of God, not just what Jesus said, it's all what Jesus said. And at home, I have a copy of a red letter edition of the Ryrie Study Bible. I know that he just, he must have had battles with Moody Press over that, or maybe he didn't have any editorial control. That's a problem with these Christian publishing houses. They, uh, they're so tied to the marketplace. That they're going to produce what the mark, what they perceive the market wants and not what's right. So anyhow, that's our emphasis and that's, that's the application of this in verse 16 is that whether words are plural or singular, present tense or heiress tense, these are important because God said it that way. That's our digression. Now we get to verse 17. This I say that the law, which was 430 years later, that is 430 years after Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That's the Abrahamic covenant, that it should make the promise of no effect. See, Paul's arguing the same thing. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. It was a permanent contract as opposed to the temporary nature of the Mosaic uh, covenant. Galatians 3.18, for if the inheritance is of law, now see how that ties right in, we're talking about inheritance, it's no longer promise, there's the same word that we have in Hebrews, it's no longer promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise, it is God's promise that we can count on, and he's not going to go back on his word, so he established that by promise, he swore by himself, because there was none greater, So that brings us to verse 18 in Hebrews 6, 18. So turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Now here the writer says, God had mediated this, or he had guaranteed it by an oath, that by two immutable things. What are the two immutable things? The first immutable thing is himself. His character. The second immutable thing is the oath. So, remember under the Mosaic law, in order for something to be confirmed, there had to be two witnesses. So you have two witnesses, his own character and his unchangeable oath. So by two unchangeable things, two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, and we have... Uh, two other passages that reiterate this same principle. Numbers 23, 19, out of the mouth of Balaam, said, "...God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good?" And then Titus 1, 2, "...in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began." Lying is impossible for God because He is perfectly righteous. It violates His character. Doesn't violate some external standard. He can't do it ontologically. It's impossible for Him in terms of His basic being for that to ever happen. It just can't happen any more than water can run uphill. It just, it, it's not in its nature. So by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And here is where he is making an application that in order that we can have strong consolation, that is, that we can be... uh, strengthened that we can be encouraged not on the basis of experience but on the basis of God and the historical record so that we might have strong con- consolation we who what who's the we we who have fled to refuge to him see we've all when we may come from different backgrounds we may come from a Jewish background you may be engaged or involved with persecution hostility from the Jewish segment I may mean, come out of a Greek Gentile background, Roman background, whatever it may be, there's always pressure in Satan's world to do it, Satan's way to follow your sin nature. But we have a refuge where we flee to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And the word for hope is our confident expectation. Notes it's set before us. That that means it's set out there ahead of us. This is something we look toward we look to it is that future that God has promised us and it is certain it's not something that we might lose don't misinterpret Hebrews 6 uh, 4 through 6 is the possibility of losing your salvation our salvation is guaranteed by the promise of God that no matter what happens we still are say we can't lose our justification And we can't lose the destiny that God has for us. There is an inheritance set out there. And so it is that, the reality of that inheritance, that hope that is set out there that gives us strength for today. It gives us stability because it's not based on who and what we are, but on who and what God is. And then we come to verse 19, and he uses the illustration or the metaphor of an anchor of the soul in order to communicate that sense of stability something that can't be moved something that can't uh, be, have its anchor cut and go off course he says this hope literally he just says this he's already talked about the hope but it's supplied by most translations for the ease of reading this hope we have as an anchor of the soul see It is this confident expectation, what's going to happen in the future, the promise that God has made, and here he's made a transition from the promise that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament to the promise of the future destiny for the church-age believer, that it is this hope, this promise of what is to come that serves as a basis for stability in our life today, that no matter how things look around you, no matter what may be going on, No matter what pressures, what adversities are taking place in your life, no matter how uncertain the circumstances may appear, our certainty, our stability is not based on day-to-day circumstances. They're based on the certainty of God's word. We may lose everything we have in this life. We may end up, those of us in this room may see a time when this country is defeated militarily with what's going on with the fact that most uh, sane people, or what we thought were sane people in this in this country, they're insane. They don't understand the difference between illegal immigration and legal immigration, and nobody ever wants to talk about it. It's amazing how uh, anybody who has any public platform runs from the truth. And as soon as they get in a position where they can talk about it, they refuse to talk about it. And we're, we're being uh, attacked subtly through our borders, and there's untold numbers of illegal Arab immigrants that have come across the border, illegal Muslim immigrants who seek to do us harm. We have who knows how many sleeper cells are here, and from what I've heard talking to people who are in law enforcement in a position to know, uh, Houston is as radicalized a city as far as uh, much of the uh, Islamic factions concerned here as any place in the country. And it could happen here. It it, it could happen anywhere in the next 20, 30 years. Many of us are going to live 20, 30, 40 more years, and we could see unbelievable disasters take place in our life. We could see uh, the economy completely collapse. I mean, the United States has got so much extended debt, it would just boggle our minds if we understood how frail the basis for our economy is. It's just based upon the... Good word of the government. That's it. There's nothing else there. It's just held up by empty faith. And yet the one thing that would happen if we lost everything, if you, you could lose things through a natural disaster. You could live in Florida, for heaven's sake, and uh, <clears throat> have lost everything three or four times in the last three or four years or live in New Orleans. And just uh, many people who go through things like that physically their life may will, will never be the same. They just don't have the opportunity to ever rebuild the kind of house they had or have the kind of job that they had or those circumstances. And so the one thing that we have in life that is that will never change, the one thing that we can count on, the one thing that is sure is Jesus Christ. And the one thing that is certain is the word of God and the promise of God. And no matter what the uh, winds of adversity may blow our way, God is always true, and his word is always true. And we may have to go through all kinds of things, but God will always be faithful. So we have one place to run for stability, and that's the imagery here. We have one place to run to lay hold of the hope set before us. This anchor of the soul, the one thing that gives stability to your soul, both sure and steadfast. The first word is osphalase which means firm, sure, steady, immovable, safe, certain, and it is a word that is often used in contexts related to truth. The second word is steadfast, but babios. That is related to that word used earlier for the confirmation of a covenant. It is a cognate word. So we have osphales for a firm, sure, immovable word, and steadfast, uh, it's a, it should read cognate, not Cognitive, that's a typo it is steadfast it is unshakable so this anchor of the soul enters the presence behind the veil now he makes a shift here so he talks of what, he, what he's been talking about here is uh, the hope that we have but he's connecting the hope now to Jesus Christ and he ties it into the tabernacle he says he enters the presence behind the veil that was the high priest In the tabernacle, here's a diagram of the tabernacle. You had the uh, outer courtyard here, and you had one entryway here indicating that there's only one way to enter into God's presence. And the Word of God is has this exclusivity down throughout all the books of the Bible. One way to go in, you have the outer courtyard here where the priest would come, and there would be various worshipers who would usually just go as far as the altar of burnt offering where they would bring a sacrifice to God. And the priest would wash his hands and feet at the laver and then enter into the holy place. Now, the holy place was divided in two sections. The back third, there's a veil on the interior. I don't have a picture of that. There's a veil on the interior separating the inner holy of holies from the outer holy place. And that is what is being talked about here. It's that inner holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested, where the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement. So that is the place where God dwelt between the cherubs, as the psalmist would say frequently. So in verse 19... Uh, this hope is what enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner, that is the one who runs ahead, pra-dramas, the one who is the precursor. It's it's another word that is used that is similar to the word that's used like back in uh, Hebrews 2.10 where it talks about Jesus as the captain of or the pioneer, the leader of our salvation, the author and completer of our faith, Hebrews 12.2. This is another word related that way, that he is the one who leads the way for us, Jesus, who has become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we right back to where we left off before we entered into this digression back in verse 10 of chapter 5 to focus on Jesus Christ's royal priesthood as being based on the order of Melchizedek. The focus here is that this is the only certainty that we have is related to Jesus in hypostatic union who has opened the veil for us so that we can enter into the presence of God and it is that orientation to God and his immutability and veracity that is the only basis or hope and certainty in our life. So next time we'll come back, get into chapter 7, where we start getting into a development of the Melchizedekian priesthood in chapter 7, verse 1. This will be the fourth section of Hebrews. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we can be encouraged and strengthened that your word, your character your promises in your word that have been revealed down through the centuries, first in the covenants, in the Abrahamic covenant, and now in the new covenant, provide the basis for our certainty, our hope, our stability in life. That there is no hope, there is no security, there is no stability apart from our relationship with you. Challenge us with this as we go throughout our week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.